Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. It's all downhill from here. I've already had the best part of the service. Well, maybe not. Let's think a little about leadership. Everybody likes to talk about leadership, right? Leadership matters. Turns out uh, that's being displayed for us in vivid and living colors every day. How much leadership matters and how much good leadership matters. Sometimes I have a chance to mentor young pastors and we have this conversation a lot. In fact, it's one of the ones they get most tired of hearing and that is, by all means, lead up. Lead up. Pray, seek, have a vision, have God inviting you to do things you've never done before, challenging the people you lead to do. I mean, lead up, have just know how to fix the world. If you're going to be a leader, know how to fix the world, at least have an idea, at least have a thought that it might, you know, but by all means, lead down, know who you're leading, know what their needs are, know how they think, know how they feel. Don't berate them to get them to follow where you're leading up. Wouldn't that be cool if we had leaders like that? (laughs) I mean, wouldn't it be so cool if people got up and talked about a vision for where we could go and encouraged all of us to come with them? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's just my vision, I guess. Leadership matters. Good leadership matters. Quality leadership matters. And we're going to talk about Micah today. And, and if I had to just kind of sum up the story of Micah, Micah is admonishing people to lead well. He, he is prophetically talking about leadership. And what's unique about that is he's not just talking about it, he's actually doing it. And he's a very unique personality among the minor prophets, among all the prophets. And, and part of the reason that he's so unique is because he has a very deep-seated sense of confidence. He's very self-confident, you know, Probably good in a prophet. We don't always see that, particularly in the minor prophets. Jonah, ah, not so much, you know. But here he is. And he will state very clearly that he has the authority of the Spirit of God on him. That's good. That's good. We want that in leaders. That's at one end of his continuum of leadership. At the other end of his continuum of leadership is something that the NIV translates as might. He has the Spirit of the Lord on him, the authority of God, and he has might. That word normally is translated courage. He has authority and courage. These are dangerous tools in the wrong hands. Amen? Were there not something in the middle of these two things tempering his perspective, tempering his behaviors, he might be a loose gun. He might be causing more problems than he's solving. Because that happens. People who feel like the Spirit of the Lord is on them and they have great authority and then they have great courage without this tempering thing in the middle. And the tempering thing in the middle for Micah is justice. So if you were to just break this down into simple ways of thinking, over here on this issue of authority would be this question, is it mine to do? 
And so just so you know, because some of you have already done this, some of you online, some of you here, you already said, oh, good, he's talking about leadership. It's not going to apply to me today. I'm not a leader, so he's going to be. And these people need to hear, whoever I think they're leaders, they need to hear this. I'm glad he's going to talk about that for them. <laughs> me, I'm going to think about solitaire. Or... Well, Peter, who was just a guy, just a fisherman, when Jesus calls him, eventually has this moment on the day of Pentecost, maybe you remember, where he goes from just being a guy to being a called leader and recognizing the authority of God on his life so that eventually as he writes his epistles, he will say this to people. You are a priesthood of believers. All y'all, as we say in Texas. All y'all. All y'all are priests in the fellowship of believers, given authority and leadership. So this isn't about someone else. This is about is it mine to do? And more specifically, what is mine to do? And then in that tempering piece, justice, the question is this. Is it fair? Is it fair? Jesus in Matthew 7 says, listen, treat other people the way you want to be treated. This sums up all the law and the prophets. That's the most concise stating of the Old Testament and the gospel you can get. That right there. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This sums up all the law and the prophets. Do we? How often we don't. <laughs> How often we will post something. And if the opposing view posted something like that, we would be very upset. But our authority has given us the opportunity to treat other people in ways that we don't want to be treated. And that's exactly what Micah is writing about. It's exactly what's going on in Israel at the time. So he tempers everything with it. And his understanding of what is fair is, is it the will of God? And he humbly seeks that all the time. Every day, all the time. Every word he speaks. Everything he says. What is mine to do? Is it fair? And then on the other end, do I dare? Do I dare do it? Do I have the courage to engage the leadership that God has authorized and invited me and tempered so that I can be an ambassador of Jesus Christ as though God himself were making his appeal through me, through me. So that's what's going on. Let's talk a little bit about Micah and his setting. Let's talk about where he's serving and what time frame he's in. And again, I'm going to apologize because it would have been much smarter to have put these people all in chronological order. And then we could have just said, and now we are up to this time. But we didn't. We took them in the order in which they appear in the Bible. So we're jumping all over the place. But you're not taking notes anyway, so I'm not sure. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> you know, I think some of you are teachers and so you, you know... You know that when you're talking, that there's always somebody in the class that goes, is this going to be on the exam? Because otherwise, I'm totally tuning you out. You know, so there is no exam. Micah writes in the 8th century. That's the 700s B.C., just before the fall of the Norman kingdom. Amos, we talked about last week, is a contemporary of Micah. And fascinating, at least to some of us, is the fact that Amos lives southeast of Bethlehem in a little village called Tekoa. Remember, he's a shepherd and he's a farmer and he prophesies way down there in the country. 
he prophesies to the, that guy that is not caught up in the urban myth, who's not caught up in the politics, who's not caught, who has, he's just out there farming, getting a word from God that's undiluted by all the other confusion. That's Amos over in the southeast corner in the wilderness, over towards the Dead Sea down, you know, if you've been there, it's not pretty. It's not, it's, it's wilderness, it's a desert, yeah. Well, Micah lives southwest. He's in the southwest of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. He's over in the valley of Allah, Elah. He's over in the valley on the coastal plain. He's getting close to the Mediterranean. He's over on that side uh, in the southwest. And he prophesies about both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And because he's sort of the mirror image, Amos and he serve at the same time. Amos is over in the southeast in a little country town. He's over in the southwest, a little country town. Scholars are like, well, he's another country guy. He's disconnected. But as we read Micah, we find out, hmm, not so much. We don't know exactly what his connections are. But we have a deep sense that he is really, really well connected, both to the politics and the priesthood that's going on in Jerusalem. And we come to understand as he writes, we understand the period of time, and we understand the place that he lives, we understand some of the reasons that he's well connected, but he has deep insight into what's going on in the area, into what's happening with the priesthood. It's an affluent time in Jerusalem and, and in the northern kingdom, southern kingdoms, we talked about that. Uh, this is sort of the, the great period of prosperity. Everybody's doing well. There's a lot of money to be had. They're paying some tribute to Assyria in the northern kingdom, but, but everybody's doing pretty well. And in that moment of comfort and affluence, there's a lot of things that have happened, as always tend to happen in times like that. And that is, they've become somewhat complacent about their faith. They've become somewhat complacent about their worship. It's become ritualistic. They go through the motions, but people aren't deeply connected. A lot of them aren't even going through the motions anymore. Uh, they become very pluralistic. There's all kinds of, you know, belief structures and systems. They're not like, yeah, whatever, you know, do that a little bit. Yeah, that's pretty good, too. And so there's sort of this multicultural, pluralistic, but not very faithful to much of anything going on. What they are worshiping is comfort. What they are enjoying is all of the spoils of the period of time in which they live and all the things that go with that. And what seems to be happening in this time of affluence is that there's great, a great deal of corruption happening in the leadership of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that's what Micah is going to call out. That's what he's going to address. That's what he's going to charge into and speak about. And so just to get a little sense of who he is and how he works and uh, how we arrive at some of this stuff, Micah 3.8 is really his call. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So there it is, the continuum of leadership for Micah. I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and with might, or courage. I've got the authority and the Spirit of God. I temper it with this justice, the will of God, but I have the courage to do and say, and I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out, Jacob. I'm calling you out, Israel. I'm saying that what's going on is not good. And he's speaking specifically against a couple of different groups. And just so we know, Micah is an egoless leader. He, 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 we at no point in his story find him to be self-preserving. We at no point find him to have an overbearing self-interest. He's not in it for his popularity. He's not in it for himself. He, he's not in it to make money. He's not in it to have influence. He's simply in it, as humbly as he knows how, to speak the word of the Lord. That seems to be, through and through, 
what he's all about and why he is doing what he is doing. He opposes two groups of people. The first group of people he opposes are the prophets. Everybody doing okay? Don't you love the room? It's kind of fun, isn't it? So uh, tomorrow night, this will be utter chaos. And some of us, by week's end, will be bruised and battered, exhausted, but also it is just crazy mad fun. So uh, pray for us. Pray for no COVID. This would be a COVID-free zone for the whole week because we just don't want to do all of that. So pray for the kids. Pray for the teachers. Pray for the leaders. Pray for the chaos. Pray for the fun. Uh, It's a great, great week. So indebted to everybody that makes it happen. So He's writing and speaking against two groups of people. The first group of people he's writing and speaking against are the prophets. This is what he writes at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 5. This is what the Lord says, As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Wow, that's hitting close to home. So he says, You prophets tend to prophesy favorably if someone is creating comfort for you. But if they create discomfort for you, you prophesy against them. That's not really the criteria of being a prophet. That the prophets are getting wealthy and corrupt just like all... So he's having to speak against hundreds of prophets who are saying to the kings and saying to the priests, you're doing great, everything's going good, way to go, love it, you're doing good. God's blessing you, all this wealth is a sign that God is blessing you. And there's this lone little voice, Micah few little voices. Amos saying, listen, the prophets are in it for themselves. They are here to perpetuate their own existence. They are here to bring themselves comfort. I'm so glad we don't live like that. I'm so glad we are not really preoccupied with our own self-preservation comfort, that we understand there's a bigger, greater cause for which to live in this world. And he speaks against the prophet. The second group of people he speaks against are the leaders. Micah 3, 1. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they've done. He's a delicate kind of writer speaks. He says, listen, you, you are consuming people. You're consuming their lives. You're consuming their well-being. You're consuming their sense of peace. You're chopping them up. You're, you're using them for your own ends. And so he's speaking against these prophets and he's speaking against these leaders. So what's happening to Micah is that Micah lives in this little town on the coastal plain. And the rulers and the leaders, both the priests and the royalty, have established five fortress cities around the little village in which Micah is living. Part of the reason we think he's so well-connected is because this is happening in his neighborhood. It's not just something going on in Jerusalem. They've opened a branch group of cities around him. And these fortress cities are supposedly spaces that are designed to be protective against the Philistines to the south and against those coming in from the Mediterranean. So these coastal cities that 
you know, fortress cities out in the coastal plain that are designed for protection. But what's happening is the kings and the priests have begun to use them as vacation spaces. They've made for themselves little comfort zones. They've got timeshares going on out there. And because they're building these cities on property and land owned by someone else, there's a great deal of corruption going on. They're taking people to court and winning because they're paying bribes, or they're just taking things that don't belong to them. If, if you stopped with me for a moment, and I, get, I could give you one of the very detailed stories, it happens a hundred years earlier in the northern kingdom, and it happens with Ahab and Jezebel, but it's a sample of exactly what is happening around Micah. So if you remember, Ahab decides that he wants to create a new palace. He wants a new comfort space. He's creating his own fortress city and his own vacation home. And so he establishes that. And then he thinks, you know what I need? I need a vegetable garden because I, I love some fresh vegetables. And he recognizes that right next to this fortress city, this vacation home that he is building, is a vineyard. And the vineyard belongs to a man named Naboth. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, Naboth, I would love to buy your vineyard. And tell, tell you what, if you'll give me the vineyard, I will give you a better venue somewhere, vine, vineyard, vineyard somewhere in the kingdom. Or I'll just pay you what it's worth or more than it's worth. I just want to have the vineyard for my vegetable garden. It's right here adjacent to my palace, to my fortress city. It's the perfect spot. And Naboth says, no way. This land belongs to my family. I could no more sell you this land than I could sell you my arm or my leg. I, I can't part. It's not really mine to even give. That's not even how the law of Israel works. There is, you, can't, you can't divest yourself of your property according to the law of Israel. You guys know this story? God granted this to my tribe, to my people, to my family. Even if I fall into debt and have to sell this property, in the year of Jubilee, it reverts ownership back to us, back to the family. You can't, you can't take possession of my land. There is nothing in the law that would allow you to take it. And so Ahab goes home, and he's mad, and he's depressed, and he's sad. And we're told that he goes to bed. And Jezebel, the queen, comes in and goes, what's wrong with you? I wanted to build a vegetable garden next to my fortress city, and... Naboth won't give me his vineyard. And she says, are you a king? I'll take care of Naboth. So she sends letters in the king's name to the village leaders. She says, throw a festival and seat two people on each side of Naboth. And while the whole city celebrates, have those two people stand up and accuse Naboth of blaspheming both God and the king and take him out and stone him. And so the leaders of the city take Naboth and they throw a party and they set him in front of all the people and they set two informants next to him and halfway through the meal they stand and they claim that he has blasphemed God and the king and they drag him out of the city and they kill him. And Jezebel goes back to Ahab and says, Naboth is dead, go and claim the vineyard that you want. This is the level of corruption. This is what Micah is seeing. This is what's going on in the five fortress cities as royalty comes and takes things they have no right to possess, takes away, tramples on the rights, win in court because they're paying off the judges. He's seeing it in this vivid living space and he's speaking out against it. He has three things that he speaks to specifically. Number one, leadership is perverting justice. Justice is no longer justice. 
Man, we could spend some time here. John Wesley lived in the 18th century. That's the 1700s. Lived the whole century. Born in 1708, died in 1791. Lived the, almost the whole century. That's the same time as Charles Dickens. It's when he writes The Christmas Carol, which might give you some insight into how the culture was working. Don't the poor have the poor houses? Aren't there still debtor prisons? You could go to jail for being poor. The rich sort of ran everything. They owned the courts. They owned everything. That's why Dickens writes his story about a ghost coming and convicting a very, very evil person because Scrooge is not, you know, a particularly evil person in the culture. He's your representative of the attitudes that were going on and prevalent in the day, and they were very prevalent in the church. So Wesley, an Anglican priest, begins to speak out against it as all of these reformers begin to talk about the fact that this is not okay. This is not how society should work. This is not how people should be treated. This is not fair and it's not just. It makes the Anglican church so uncomfortable that one of their priests is speaking like this that they excommunicate him and derisively call him and his movement Methodist for their methodical care and attention to the details of Scripture and for care for the poor. When people would argue with Wesley, which was very often, he would say to them, I need to ask you this question before we argue. Is your heart right with God as my heart is right with God? If we are both seeking this middle ground of justice in which God's will is being done on earth, we may not agree on what that is. But if we both agree that that is the goal, then we have means and grounds for a conversation, a gentle, humble conversation in which the authority of the Spirit is in us, but we look for justice, an egalitarian way in which we treat other people the way we want to be treated. We have to be so careful. We have to be so careful. We have to have the authority of the Spirit, absolutely. But the humility of the justice piece, the fairness of the justice, is it fair? Is it fair? God is always fair. Always just. He speaks that the leadership is corrupting and perverting justice. Number two, that they're coveting the belongings of others. They have come to believe, the leaders have come to believe that whatever anybody has is theirs to take. I'm so glad people in our leadership, in our world and government don't think that. They just come to this point where they just go so powerful that, that whatever they want becomes sort of ordained as the thing that ought to be. And they become greedy. That happens in affluent societies, doesn't it? Isn't that strange how that works? I mean, I don't know. We, we talked about this years ago at the study about the paradox of choice. That the more choices you have, we equate freedom with choice. The more choices you have, the more freedom you have. But there's a paradox. The more choices they have, the less satisfied you are. Ah. The guy uses a simple illustration. I had to go buy a pair of jeans. I went to the store and I said, I need to buy a pair of jeans. They said, what can you want? What the pair, like the ones I'm wearing. Well, there's 17 fits. There's 28 washes. There's 34 styles. What is one size in one style is not the same size in another style. Can I get an amen? I mean, you just can't do that. You buy that pair of jeans, and you're like, nope. 
That used to be my size, but evidently not in this version of jeans. <laughs> he says, I got to the, I, he, I answered 40 questions about the jeans. They brought me a pair of jeans that were the most customized pair of jeans I had ever purchased in my whole life. Up till this moment, I walked in, I looked at the shelf, I took the pair of jeans, I took them home, I put them on. It was the best fitting pair of jeans I had ever owned, and I was the least satisfied I had ever been. Why? Well, they raised my expectations. I figured with all those churches, they were going to, all those choices, they were going to be the perfect pair of jeans. And it turns out they're not. They're just another pair of jeans. And that's what happens in a culture of affluence. We begin to expect that everything's going to work exactly right. We have zero tolerance for things that don't work right. If you don't think so, go to Starbucks in the morning and stand in line and listen to what happened. Is this oat milk? What you expect me to drink here? Can't drink cow's milk. What am I, a barbarian? Amen? More choices than we have. I don't even know they make milk out of these things. And you say, well, we're not really wealthy. Well, if you live in this country, you're among the 5% of the wealthiest people who have ever lived on this planet. I don't mean if you're wealthy in this culture. I mean if you live in this country. You are living in a culture that is among the 5% of the wealthiest. And you go, well, I don't really experience wealth. You do. When you walk out of here and you walk on a sidewalk, you're experiencing wealth. When you drive on paved streets, when the street lights work, when you go home and your air conditioner is running, when the water turns on and it's clean, when it rains and there is a place for the water to go, this is not true around the world. I ran into a lady the other day who was raised in South Africa, and they just moved to the U.S. Uh, a few years ago. And I said, so how's that going? What's happening? And she said, well, you know, it's really interesting because at first we were going back to South Africa all the time because we just want to see family, and we're just so anxious. And she said, now I go back, and I just have no patience for it. And I said, what, what do you mean? She goes, you know, well, in South Africa, you, when you go back, you know, any time of the day, the power might just shut off, and you might be several hours without any power at all. And that's just part of life. That just happens every day. It just goes on. And just, it's just your neighbor. And you just don't even think about it. But now I've lived in the U.S. for a little while. And my power doesn't go off. And my water doesn't shut off. And my utilities run all day. <laughs> and frankly, I just go back and I don't have any patience for it anymore. Amen? Because that's what happens to us. And we get into this mode of wanting more and believing we deserve it. And we're entitled to it somehow. The third thing he speaks against is hypocritical religiosity. He makes this observation. You guys are so good at pretending to be religious. you got a beautiful temple. It's full of wealth. Your priests look really good. They've got a lot of finery that they're, winning, that they're wearing. It looks really good. You do all the ritual really well. It seems super important. There's a lot of pomp. There's a lot of circumstance. But there is no heart. There's no heart. There's no sense of empathy. There's no sense of compassion. There's no sense of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. Self-control. None of that stuff shows up. And it's not okay. Micah 6, 6 through 8. This is maybe the most famous writing of Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. Well, you would think that sort of Micah's writing then is sort of depressing. It turns out that it's not. It's full of hope. As he gets to chapter 7, he begins then to share this. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread on our sins underfoot. You'll hurl our, all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You'll be faithful to Jacob. You'll show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestor in days long ago. He says, here's why I want you to be hopeful. Number one, God has a covenantal kind of love. Meaning, I am choosing to call you and pull you into relationship with me, and I will be your covenant partner. And no matter how far you go astray, and no matter how bad off you are, I will never break my side of the covenant. Not ever. I will be faithful to you. I will be faithful to you. That's good news. That's good news. I, I was thinking as we were singing uh, in first service, and you know, we're talking about you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. And then we say, I never walk alone. I'm going to reprise that in a minute. Somebody here needs to hear that. Somebody here, you need to sit in that space and you need to hear that. Because somehow you've decided that, you know, God doesn't see you or love you or care or maybe he's mad at you or you didn't do well, you didn't perform very well. And listen, he's a covenantal God. Even when we are faithless, Still, he is faithful because he cannot deny his own character. He loves us like that. He loves you like that. In the midst of whatever we are doing, wherever we've been, whatever has happened. And Micah says, listen, it's as big of a mess as it is. God has created covenant. And he's just inviting you to come back to the covenant. Come back to the covenant. Just humble yourself and come back to the covenant. Number two. He has hope because of God's character. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and tramples our iniquities underfoot? Who looks at all of our faults and goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm tossing this out. I'm going to toss it out. You know, we're told that when we confess our sins, he buries them in the sea of his forgetfulness. I always think that the conversation from God's side must go something like, God, I'm so sorry. I just, I just want to confess my sin to you, and I just want to ask you to forgive me. And I believe you hear me, and I believe when I ask, you forgive me. And then five minutes later, you know, God, that thing we were talking about? And God must go, no. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Because I buried it in the sea of my forgetfulness. Because that's what grace is. Grace is not that I keep a record and I go, oh, this is the 47th time you've asked for forgiveness for this chronic problem. I am so, I had it up to here with you. The grace of God says, hello, child. Born again, brand new, no record, clean, fresh. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. Where do you get a deal like that? 
You don't get to go like nowhere. There's no. Micah says, who, who is a God like you? There's nobody that pardons and forgives and cleanses and washes away. And then number three, God's promise. We're hopeful because of God's promise. He wasn't forgetting. Even now, all the promises that he made to his people. And Micah brings it up. You made some promises to Abraham. You made some promises to Jacob. You made some promises to Israel. You're going to keep your promises. And he's made some promises to you and me. As we close, I just want to ask you a couple questions. One is just simply this. In what way are you leading? I love the progression that Jesus creates in the Great Commission. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the world. And I think Jesus very intentionally is saying, you'll receive power and you are to lead in Jerusalem. You're to lead at home. Start there. Some people are great at leading in the uttermost parts of the world because they're not there very often. <laughs> Amen? But leading every day, all the time, in our normal life, with the authority of the Spirit, what is mine to do? With justice, is it fair? Am I being fair? Am I being fair with my kids? Am I being fair with my friends? Am I being fair with others? Am I being fair in my pontificating? The justice of God must rule. All the authority in the world is muted or destroyed if we are not committed deeply to this middle piece of fairness, the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. And then do I have courage? Do I dare? Do I dare? Do I dare at home? Do I dare in Judea, which is in the greater community? Do I dare lead? And then Samaria, do I dare lead where people are different from me and believe different than me? And act different than me? And oh, do I dare lead in places where I don't really like everybody? Am I supposed to lead there too? With the authority of the Spirit and the humility of fairness? And the courage? And then if I do that, if I, do, if I lead all of those places well, then, then I maybe can go lead in the uttermost part of the earth. Are we spending more time perpetuating our own existence and thinking about ourselves and what makes us happy than we are about saying, you know what, I'm a child of God. I'm to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. If I start going that way, I'm going to find a high, high level of dissatisfaction. I want to put first things first. Let's pray. God, would you search us and help us? We recognize that we are creatures who love to be comfortable. In fact, we can, we can begin to think that a loss of convenience is persecution. We can start to feel like we're being mistreated and misused in a culture, in a world that is so full of grace and beauty. When we start thinking about ourselves first and we put other things second or third or fifth, the world becomes a pretty dark place. 
But in the midst of speaking up for things that ought to be, the will of God alive on earth, done on earth as it is in heaven, would you remind us that we never walk alone? That the fate of this world is not in the hands of politicians, it's not in the hands of kings, it's not in the hands of religious leaders. The fate of this world is not dictated by what happens inside this country. The fate of the world is in the hands of a loving Father who's promised to bring us home. And so I pray today across this room, folks online, folks who will watch through the course of this week, search us, know our hearts, see if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us all in the way everlasting. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.